Welcome to the Emergence Sessions podcast. Sessions is a ministry of Emergence Church that exists to equip us to walk as disciples of Jesus by growing in knowledge and in our ability to live wisely in his world. Lord, thank you so much for this time, these six sessions that we've gotten together uh, to study your word, to think about you, and to see all the ways that you've revealed yourself to us. Uh, we just ask that you would bless this time together tonight, that we could uh, use what we discussed tonight to glorify you by leading others to Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, well, this is the last session of the summer. And uh, it, boy, it really, uh, it really flew by for me. I really enjoy these, these sessions. Now, Doug and I vacillated between calling this session our Christians narrow-minded and our Christians bigots. And uh, we've used both, both titles at, at some point in these six weeks. So we're actually going to talk about both of them. They're very closely related. And uh, I'm going to just start by defining some terms according to Merriam-Webster's dictionary. So we're, we're all on the same page. So narrow-minded, not willing to accept opinions, beliefs, behaviors, etc., that are unusual or different from one's own, not open-minded. And that's uh, defined as receptive to arguments or ideas. So you're not receptive to arguments or ideas if you're narrow-minded. And a bigot, is a person who is obstinately or intolerantly devoted to his or her own opinions and prejudices, especially one who regards or treats the members of a group, such as a racial or ethnic group, with hatred and intolerance. So a bigot is a narrow-minded person, but the word bigot adds intolerance and hatred of those who think differently than him or her. And since I use the word intolerant, and lots of people use that word, let's look at a definition here. There's three definitions. Number two really speaks to what we're talking about. So unwilling to grant equal freedom of expression, especially in religious matters. The second part of that definition, unwilling to grant or share social, political, or professional rights. Bigoted. In another entry for uh, intolerance, I read, if you describe someone as intolerant, you mean that they do not accept behavior and opinions that are different from their own. So there's a lot of controversy around that word intolerant. And really, the, culturally, that, that meaning of that word has, has changed quite a bit in what people mean when they say intolerant. It used to mean to put up with, you know, to each his own. You're entitled to your opinion. I'm entitled to my opinion. And that's being tolerant of each other. But what it's, it's come to me now is that we have to accept someone's ideas as just as valid as our own. That's kind of the new tolerant when you, when you, when you hear people use it a lot. And that's, that's pure foolish, foolishness. But to violate this rule is, is to commit one of the few sins left in our culture. And it will justify people being intolerant against you. Just a couple more definitions. It seems like simple stuff, but when you talk to people, 
it seems like a lot of people don't understand it. Like reality. Reality is simply the way things are. And I know there's a lot of philosophical baggage attached to that statement, but I'm, I'm trying to keep it simple for, uh, for expediency. Belief is the way we understand things to be. And truth is that which corresponds to reality or facts. So when our belief matches reality, we have truth. One other term we need to understand is the law of non-contradiction. The opposite of true is false. Right? This sounds like third grade stuff. Right? This seems very elementary. Opposite ideas can't be both true at the same time and in the same sense. Right? The earth cannot be both flat and round at the same time. If we were to say so, we'd be contradicting ourselves. It's just impossible. So although it sounds really simple, we hear self-contradicting statements all the time, especially when it comes to religious beliefs on the nature of truth. The easiest way to detect these contradictions is to apply a statement to itself and see if the statement refutes itself. That sounds complicated, but it's really very easy. Let's take a look at, at some of these, just to, so you can see what I'm saying. There is no truth. That statement refutes itself. Why? Because it's a statement claiming to be true. The person who says there is no truth expects you to believe that statement is absolute truth, even though he's denying truth. Or truth cannot be known. Well, if you can't know truth, how do you know that that's true? All truth is relative. That's one of my favorites. I would, I, I, if I was snarky, I'd say, are you absolutely true? Are you absolutely sure about that? But, but seriously, no, notice that even relativists want you to listen to their statements and read their books as if they contained objective truth. Right? Try taking an exam based on your deconstruction of your teacher's text you're not gonna get, to get, good, get a good grade. So understand that even people who deny truth are expecting you to understand their statements as truth. So really what they're just denying is, is your truth, the truth that you're trying to put forth as objective truth. How about you can't know the truth about God? Well, isn't that a statement that claims to know something about God? That it's a statement that the person wants you to believe is true about God. And as, as straightforward as that may seem to you, I, I gave a, a talk at Montclair State a couple of years ago just on this very subject, and are there many ways to God? And I had people waiting for 30, 40 minutes after I was done talking to tell me that I was playing around with words. They, they, didn't, they couldn't think critically about what I was saying. They didn't see that what I was saying was a logical appraisal of, of the statement. They thought I was just do, engaging in wordplay. And it was more than just one, one of the students. I had, a, I had a great time that night, but it really was a very eye-opening uh, night for me just to see how deep this misunderstanding goes. How about this uh, statement? The scientific method is the only means of knowing truth. Well, that's not quite as apparent as the other self-contradicting statements. I hope some of you can see what's wrong with that, problem, with, wrong with that statement. The problem is you can't prove this statement is true by using science. It's a philosophical supposition. There's no way you can prove that the scientific method is the only means of knowing truth. So it's a self-contradictory statement. 
And here's one that we hear a lot, you shouldn't judge. That's kind of a double judgment. If someone says that to you, you shouldn't judge. They have judged you as being judgmental, right? So they've already made that judgment. But even more basically, the statement you shouldn't judge is a moral judgment. That person is making a moral judgment that it's not okay to judge. And, and so we have yet another self-contradictory statement. And you know, it's easy to get snarky when you're talking to someone like that, but if you're gonna speak the truth in love, the best way to do that is to ask people questions. What do you mean by that? Why do you come to believe that? Let them defend their statement without putting them on the defensive. When you put the, on, them on the defensive or insult someone, the shields go up and, and, and you've, you're just, you've lost the battle for Christ because of my own ego. Uh, so take it from me. Speak the truth in love. Ask questions that help the person examine the inconsistency in, in what they think. Uh, here's another one. You shouldn't force your morals on others. Well, should you force that moral on me then? Right? It's, it's very simple stuff. So in summary, contrary beliefs are possible. Contrary truths are not possible. You can believe everything is true, but everything can't be true. Objective truth can't even be denied without being affirmed. Right? You have to use the law of non-contradiction if you're going to say the law of non-contradiction is false, well, you've just used the law of non-contradiction to complain about it. If you say there's no truth, you're trying to use objective truth or a truth claim to prove that there's no truth. That's how basic it is that we're talking. And yet, I'm, I'm sure we've all heard people say this type of stuff that just contradicts itself. It is logically inconsistent. And yet, there's no problem with people, and especially on social media. I don't. Other times on social media, I just move on. I just, <laughs> there's, a, there's a no win. But that's truth in a nutshell. In summary, truth is exclusive and narrow-minded. It excludes everything that contradicts it. If you believe something is true, you are narrow-minded. Because you believe anything that contradicts that is false. Now, you might be open to hearing a counter to that argument. But unless it's a really good counter, you're not going to change your opinion. And you're not going to validate that person's contradictory opinion as just as valid as your own if you really believe what you believe is true. So a friend of mine gave me a, a book last week called uh, Mere Evangelism, 10 Insights from C.S. Lewis to Help You Share Your Faith. And uh, I took a lunch break today, and I just read a couple pages in it. And, and it, was, it was great. I'm, I'm glad I did, because now I have an illustration for you right out of that book. The first chapter was about pre-evangelism. What do you do before you, you, you give someone the gospel? And it told the story of this guy named Tom Terrence. I'd never heard of him. Apparently, he's the president of the C.S. Lewis Institute. And, and before that, he co-pastored an ethnically diverse church in Washington, D.C., but before that, he was a member of the Ku Klux Klan, which is how he ended up in the state penitentiary. And while he was in the state penitentiary, he started reading philosophy. Um, and it was a book on political philosophy that started him thinking, 
or actually it started him questioning whether his views about race were really true or even coherent. The author noted in, this, in the case of, of uh, Terence, it was as if he needed his thinking about truth in general to be rewired before exploring the specific truth of the gospel. He came to see he was wrong about something he had felt so right about, the inferiority of some races to others. Realigning his thinking about truth paved the way for him to submit to truth. That's a really heavy statement there. And, and you know, as I think of some people who make truth claims that contradict themselves, I start thinking, you know, there's a, there's a lot of truth to that. Some people need to have the way they think about truth rewired. I, I saw an exchange where a fellow was, was telling another person, who, who, he said something about, I don't remember the exact words, but he said something, you know, let me tell you the truth, or I want to, this is true. And the other person said, you claiming truth, that you know truth, is, is doing violence upon me. And he was very vehement. I don't want to hear your truth. You're just trying to harm me. And, and, and that's how some people think these days. So we really, it's quite a job sometimes just to rewire someone to think about truth. So I, I hope you're all taking that church-wide challenge of, of doing, of casting out with the gospel once a week so that we could try to have 100,000 casts as a, as a body of Christ in northern New Jersey. And some of the people that you cast to may need to hear about the truth before you introduce them to the truth of Jesus Christ, the truth of the gospel. Many people have no idea what it means to think critically or that there's such a thing as absolute truth, even though they make truth claims every day. And not all people have to read Plato before they read Paul. I mean, this is one story. And God can work in people in mysterious ways. Sometimes he uses apologetics as the key to someone softening their heart and coming to Christ through the gospel. You never know what God's going to use. That's why we, we each need to take a step of obedience and cast out and pray to God for opportunities and, and the wisdom to see those opportunities. If you're interested in that story about the guy in the Ku Klux Klan, Tarrant, uh, he wrote a book called Condemned by Hate, uh, Consumed by Hate, Redeemed by Love. I've never read the book. I just, I just learned about him today, but, but uh, that's a book that he's wrote. So, as we're going to see, Christians are narrow-minded, and so is Jesus, and so is everyone else who makes a truth claim, even Oprah Winfrey. Oprah, along with many Christians and non-Christians, believes that there are certainly many more paths to God other than Christianity. But doesn't that view exclude anyone who believes otherwise? Isn't that narrow-minded as well? even though it sounds so accepting. If you don't believe that, you're narrow-minded. There's a YouTube I saw, and I'm going back probably five years, and the, the YouTube was probably older, of Oprah making a statement like that on her show. And there was a Christian woman in the audience who actually called her out on it and said, there are many ways don't lead to God. Jesus Christ is the only way. And, and Oprah really took exception to that with, with anger and, and almost outrage. It was really, she really laid into that Christian woman for, for being so arrogant as to think 
that Christ is the only way. So the belief that there's many ways to God is called pluralism. A very common analogy uh, used for a long time is that of six blind men walking into a room with an elephant. And, uh, and one blind man feels uh, the trunk of the elephant and thinks it's a snake. Another one feels a tusk and thinks it's a spear. Another one leg thinks it's a tree. One touches the side of, of the uh, elephant and thinks it's a wall. Another one touches the ear and thinks it's a fan. And so the elephant represents God. And each part of the elephant is supposed to represent a different religion. And so they're saying each religion can only see a part of God, just like those blind men could only feel a part of the elephant. They didn't know it was an, the whole elephant. They only knew what they could feel. So, of course, it, each religion only sees a piece of God. No religion is the truth. But what's wrong with this analogy? Can, can anybody see the, the flaw in this analogy? Well, that, that's true. That's certainly the flaw in pluralism, that Jesus is the only way. But in this, this illustration, it doesn't illustrate what it means to illustrate. We have the next uh, slide. It means to illustrate that truth is relative to the individual. But the individual using this analogy, the person who just gave us the story, knows that the blind men are mistaken because he knows that it's an elephant, right? It's absolutely true that it's an elephant, and the person giving you the story knows that. So it's really quite arrogant to say that all religions only know a piece of God because the pluralist, next slide, the pluralist believes that everyone's blind but him or her, right? He knows it's an elephant. The person, even without, even without the, um, the analogy, even the person that tells you that each religion sees part of God, well, for that person to know it, he or she would have to know what the whole God looks like to know that we can only see a piece of it through the religions. It's really, when you think of it, it's a very arrogant way of thinking. It's very closed-minded, for sure. Right? He's right, and everyone else is wrong. And the deeper you think about pluralism, about all these ways leading to God, the more problems arise, more than just a simple elephant. Different belief systems are mutually exclusive, right? In other words, they're narrow-minded. They're not even talking about the same God, right? Islam, Judaism, Christianity believe in a theistic God, a creator God that is outside his creation. Other religions are pantheistic. They think God and the creation are the same thing. Some are panentheistic. They think that God is in his creation. And some don't even require a God at all. So how can they all lead to the same end when they're not even talking about the same God? So I've taken a few popular religions here and I've summarized how they strive for salvation or the ultimate end in life. And, and I'll just read them for, for the people who are on the podcast. In Christianity, it's by faith alone in Christ alone. 
in Islam, it's by, by belief in Allah, his prophet Muhammad, and good works. In Hinduism, it's by overcoming karma and reincarnations with good works. Buddhism, it's by the cessation of desire through eightfold path. And humanism, it's by education in this life because there's no afterlife. Again, there's simplifications because I have 30 minutes to talk to you. But you get the idea. They're not talking about going to the same place. They're not talking about the same God. How could they possibly all lead to God? And here's an, another comparison of claims regarding the ultimate destiny. They're all narrow-minded. Right? Each belief excludes from their belief system anything that contradicts what they believe. So each belief system here excludes all others. Even a belief like Baha'i, which attempts to unite all beliefs into one, is exclusive because anyone who believes differently is still considered mistaken. So Christianity, who, who does not believe in the Son is condemned. Oh, no, back. Could you go back? Press the, uh, that's it. Islam, unbelievers will be inmates of hellfire. Surah 588. Hindu, everyone is subject to the laws of karma and trapped in reincarnations. Buddhism, everyone doesn't exist. Nirvana is the state of the extinguished ego. And humanism, everyone will become nothing more than word worm food. They all contradict each other, and they all claim to be true. There's no way they can all be true. Anyone with that much logical sense can, can see that. So yes, next slide. Yes, Christianity excludes all other paths to God that don't go through Jesus. Jesus goes as far to say he is the truth, not that he has the truth or is giving you the truth. Christ says he is the truth. There's many ways to Jesus. Every person in this room has a story of how they came to know Jesus Christ. But there's only one way to the Father. Every person in this room has got to have the blood of Jesus to get to God. They have to put their trust in Jesus Christ to come to the Father. And if some gospel says otherwise, it's a false gospel. It's not true. But there's something else to keep in mind. Other religions are exclusive in a way that Christianity is not. All other religions, in one way or another, are work-based. And you're excluded from the ultimate reward if you have not performed well. In this regard, Christianity is the most inclusive religion in the world. We've already noted how Christ included and respected women as ministry partners at a time when they were second-class citizens at best, or at worst, property. The gospel has many accounts of Jesus hanging out and eating with tax collectors, prostitutes, and other very marginalized people of his time. Jesus Christ was exclusive in his truth, but he was inclusive in that anyone who came to Christ was welcomed. Even the thief on the cross, who didn't have time to learn any doctrinal statements or to know whether he was reformed or not, he was spending time in paradise with Christ on that day because he believed in Christ and trusted in Christ. 
But look how the, the, the Bible opens the door for, for all to follow Christ. In the Great Commission, Christ commands us to make disciples of all nations, not by the sword, but by the truth that is Christ. Revelation 7-7, uh, I think it is? 7-9, seven, 7-9. Nine, seven, nine. The people standing around in white robes before the throne of God are from every nation, all tribes and peoples and tongues. How much more inclusive can you get than that? John 3.16 tells us that whoever believes in Christ shall not perish, but have eternal life. Truth is exclusive, and Christ tells us he is the truth. Christians are narrow-minded, and so is Jesus. But Christianity is the most inclusive religion there is. We don't have to work our way to salvation. We repent and put our trust in Christ's finished work. Anyone can call on the name of the Lord. Romans 10, 11 to 13 reads, Everyone who believes in Jesus will not be put in shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We were studying Acts just a few weeks ago. We were in Acts 2, Peter's great sermon, Acts 2.21. He says the exact same thing. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And in that sermon, that was actually a quote from Joel chapter 2. So one of the rules of hermeneutics is if the Bible says something multiple times, guess what? It's important. And so here we have a statement that shows up multiple times, Old and New Testament, that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's as, as inclusive as it gets. I don't know how you could be more inclusive than that. Well, a universalist would say, well, if you really want to be inclusive, I shouldn't have to get off my couch at all. Well, <laughs> can't go there. Let's not forget the lesson from last Sunday, right? The Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. Everything about him set him apart as an outsider from both Jews in Jerusalem and the local Christians. And look how much space is devoted to his story. More space than just about anyone else. Look at the special means God employed to bring him to salvation. Again, inclusivity. There's many more examples throughout the New Testament of this. Think of Christian slaves and Christian politicians addressing each other as brother or greeting each other with a holy kiss, as Paul commands in Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, uh, 1 Thessalonians. There's only one race, the human race. And the only distinction God ever made among man was between Jew and and Gentile. And God provided the way to reconcile that through Jesus Christ. So if God can reconcile Jew and Gentile, which are, was a real division that he created, how much more can he reconcile the races and the ethnicities, which are not even a real distinction? It's a distinction that man created, not God. Read Ephesians, the second half of Ephesians 2. It's really powerful about how God feels about 
different ethnicities and how we are all reconciled, how we are all one in Christ. It's a powerful. So narrow-minded, yes, I'm guilty as charged. Bigoted, no, Christianity is not bigoted. Individual Christians can certainly be bigoted and hateful. I, I won't deny that. Um, but if we're following Christ, if we're truly following Christ, we cannot be. If we are, we're not following Christ on that. Christianity is, is not bigoted, but some Christians are. And there's plenty of people who call themselves Christians and hide under the Christian name uh, that do horrible things in the name of Christ. Uh, there's less and less of them because it used to be advantageous to be a Christian, right, for business purposes and for social purposes. But now that there's some persecution heating up, we find more and more people are, are stepping away that were never Christians in the first place and not claiming to be Christian because it's not advantageous anymore. But there's still people who call Christ their Savior who are bigoted, and I will not argue that. Um, but what I will say is they're not following Christ. Um, you know, remember Paul's story of Peter um, in, in Acts. Peter, I'm sorry, it was in Galatians 2. Uh, Peter was separating from some Gentiles. And, and what did Paul say? Paul said that Peter, quote, was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Right? Peter was making a distinction that should not have been made above Christians. And Paul called it out as not walking in step with the gospel. So let's not walk out of step with the gospel. We all need to continually make sure that we are walking in step with the gospel lest we act as bigots. Other good passages to read on this are uh, Ephesians uh, 2.11 to the end of the chapter, which I mentioned, Galatians 3.28, and Paul's uh, letter to Philemon. 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 Next slide. I found this on, on social media. Jesus Christ, the best excuse for a narrow-minded bigot to act like one. For some of you that have been to summer sessions before, do you see any logical fallacy in this? It's called an ad hominem attack, right? It's just plain name calling. There's no intellectual exchange. There's no intellectual statement here. There's no position taking except calling Christians a name. And since that person is calling a name to a group of people, wasn't that the, the definition of bigotry that we just read before? Isn't this person a bigot by calling all Christians narrow-minded and bigots? This is a common tactic that we see, name-calling to Christians to get them to shut up. If you speak up, people call you names, you feel embarrassed, and you shut up. It's just a way of bullying people. There's no one-size-fits-all answer to this when someone calls you narrow-minded. But how about asking the question? You know, we all, always want to defend ourselves with a statement. But how about just asking a question? It often is the most effective way to someone's heart, or at least to someone's mind. What do you mean by narrow-minded, right? The answer is often going to be something like, well, you think you're right, and everyone else is wrong. And if they say something like that, I mean, why don't you ask them, well, do you think you're right? And of course, they do think they're right, or they wouldn't be attacking you. And then ask them if they think I'm wrong. 
of course they do, or they wouldn't have said that in the first place. So right there, we've got this person admitting that, that they're, they're narrow-minded. It's, it's, it's simple stuff, but people don't, people don't think about that. We often just let people name-call without calling them to task on it. And again, I won't deny that Christians give Christ a bad name. We're awful prideful, arrogant sinners, myself included. And that's why we need to get out of the way and let and let people see Christ. You know, that's, there's that, that silly saying, um, preach the gospel, use words if you have to. Well, that's just silliness. You know, no one's going to come to Christ by watching Walter Windisch, even on a good day. I'm, I'm serious, you know? The only way people believe is by hearing the gospel. The only power in the message is the gospel of Christ, not our behavior. We're a bunch of knuckleheads, and I'm, I'm the biggest knucklehead in the room. I guarantee you. So we need to show people Christ. We need to get out of our own way. I just want to show you, I, I know we're, we started late, so we're running a little late. So um, maybe skip to the... Uh, Well, this, this is, a, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll look at this, and then I'll go to another one. This is a, a great slide. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That's 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26. And that's a great model of how we should approach people, even people who are calling us names and even blaspheming God. We should approach them and try to teach them. Uh, let's go on one more. Also, the natural, when you think 1 Corinthians 2, 14, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Someone without the Holy Spirit is not going to understand what you're saying to him. That's why you have to pray for the person. It's the Holy Spirit that leads the person to Christ. We say what we need to say, but we don't save anybody. It's only by the power of the Spirit of God that someone's heart's going to be softened. And, you know, once you understand that, that's a huge burden off your shoulders because it's not up to you. You take a step of obedience. When Christ gives you the opportunity to share the gospel, share the gospel. If the person walks away, it's, it's not on you. The Spirit of God can, can, can use just about anything you say if it's to be. Next uh, slide. I got, I'm going to just go with one last slide if it's there. Is there another slide? Oh, no, I'll read it. I think we skipped it somehow. You know, I, I just wanted to make one illustration to you. We've looked at a, at a couple of um, situations where I've quoted astronomers and physicists and biologists who say stuff like, yeah, I know that things look like they have design and, and they were designed with a purpose, but we need to remember that it's all natural processes, that it's not God. They see the fingerprint of God and they deny it even when it's plain in front of their face. And so here's, here's the words of one philosopher, which I'm going to end with just to give you an, an idea of uh, 
So Thomas Nagel's a professor of philosophy at, at law at NYU. And he taught from 1980 to 2016. Here's what he has to say. I want atheism to be true and I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. And there's a number of philosophers who, when they're candid, they will say things like that. And it's, it's rebelliousness. It's, it's premeditated rebellion. It's self-delusion. It's not that they need more information. They might need someone to minister to them, which is why if you ask people questions, you can see what aspect of, of Christ's grace they might need to hear at that moment. Um, but people like Thomas Nagel, they don't need more information. Some of those astronomers we saw, biologists, they don't need more information. They need to see the grace of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to hand it over to Doug for part two, but I'll open it up to questions if anyone has any questions. Yes. Yeah, so um, I just uh, was thinking about the question, are Christians open-minded or narrow-minded? Um, I was just thinking about if God is open-minded or narrow-minded, and I think of what God has done in the story of the Bible. And I guess in the beginning, uh, God asks Adam and Eve not to eat of the fruit of the tree. And Adam and Eve eventually eat from the fruit of the tree, and then God kind of punishes them. And it's really uh, in the New Testament where God kind of undoes some of what he does, that, um, that he brings Jesus Christ as a savior, and he said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that the world, well, that those who believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And what I found interesting is that um, Jesus didn't die for truth, but Jesus died for us and the people that believe in him. And the thing is, he didn't die so much for the truth, but really the believers. And to reinforce that, I mean, first I just would say that God is love according to the book of James, but... Um, there's a verse in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8 that says, uh, love, love is patient, love is kind, love is not envy, love is not boast, love is not proud, love is not self-seeking, love is not easily angered, love, keep, love does not dishonor others, love keeps no record of wrongs, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Love never fails. Where there are prophecies, it'll, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is not knowledge, it will pass away. And I guess, like, the trusting aspect of God would show why God trusts us to have free will. So that's how God always trusts. But what sticks out to me is how it says, where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. And I think of the prophecy that mankind would be cursed by Adam, and it doesn't really fully become relieved, but to some extent, Jesus Christ offers us a salvation that kind of is a result of God's love. And I think that in the Old Testament, there is a lot of rigidity with the truth. And in the New Testament, it has a human focus on it. And where there's knowledge, it'll pass away. And um, I just think that, yeah, the truth is amazing, and it's an amazing aspect. But I think that love for humanity is also a great indicator of what God 
reveals to us. And um, also, it shows how we should treat others as well to some extent because Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And Jesus Christ died for us. And Paul was persecuted for us. And so we should love others as well. And yeah. No, absolutely. Um, you know, truth and love are not mutually exclusive. We speak the truth in love. Because we're talking about narrow-mindedness, I focused on, on truth. God is not open-minded because there's nothing we can teach God, right? God's not open to listen to us because we might teach him something that would change his mind. He's immutable. He does not change. He loves, absolutely. But there's a balance there. Um, I just wanted to say that um, the reason I pointed out love and truth is because with Adam came the beginning and with Jesus Christ came the end. And Jesus represented dying for the world because God for, so loved the world. And the reason that he died was for us out of love. And where truth was in the beginning with Adam, love was in the end with Christ. And again, First Corinthians says, where there is knowledge, it'll pass away in the same context that it speaks about love. Um, I just wanted to share that. Yeah, you know, truth without love can be, is, is I can't even think of the word right. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's no good. It can just lead, lead to legalism, spiritless legalism. But love without truth just leads to wishy-washy emotionalism. And you need truth and love, or, or you're going to go, you're going to err on either side. Uh, yeah, Second Peter 1, 5 through 9. Uh, to faith, we add goodness. To goodness, we add knowledge. And knowledge is definitely truth. And to knowledge, we add self-control. To self-control, we add perseverance. To perseverance, we add godliness. To godliness, we add mutual affection. And to mutual affection, we add love. So there we go. Uh, so to knowledge, which is originally earlier on, we add love eventually. So love is something that we add to our knowledge. Uh, yeah. Uh, thanks, Walt, for your thoughts on all of this. Um, I'm grateful to Walt in so many ways, and he'd probably kill me if I shared them with you, but uh, most of all for his commitment to the Lord Jesus and his passion to so clearly communicate the truth. So thank you, Walt, for always being my, uh, my partner in uh, the sessions ministry. Um, <clears throat> I think you all saw why uh, they don't ask me to do slides on Sundays. Uh, they did ask me to do it at the like the impact celebration, and I was doing it with the music, and I'm like, this is a terrible task to give someone with adult ADHD, because like I'd be at the beginning, I'd mess one up, and then at the beginning, I'd, I'd click it, and I'm like, all right, next one, I'm gonna be right on point, and by the time it was time to switch them, I'm like, all right, there's nine light bulbs in this row, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, so <clears throat> not the best job for me, not my wheelhouse, um. So let's say you get the question, is Christianity bigoted? Okay. Um, Walt, of course, <clears throat> laid some important groundwork here. Um, <clears throat> but I would add to this uh, by using the question to do some honest introspection. Uh, on the one hand, there's nothing inherently bigoted about Christianity. Uh, uh, truth is, by its very nature, exclusionary of falsehood. Right? So when you affirm one thing is true, you are of necessity affirming other things as false. And this is not unique to Christianity. It's universal to everyone who makes any statement about how the world is. 
On the other hand, I think it's important to acknowledge that we Christians can sometimes be bigots uh, in, in the way that we interact with people who disagree with us. That is, we can be intolerant, uh, mean, nasty, and being right about some things doesn't excuse that. Um, that's sometimes an excuse we could tell ourselves, well, I'm right, so I get to say it however I want, right? That's something we need to be aware of. These are things that people will see before they see your reasoning or your arguments. How we conduct ourselves as we share the truth is a necessary component to any effective apologetic. Take the classic apologetic text, right? First Peter 3.15. This verse tells you to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. But if you read the entire paragraph in which that statement occurs, it's striking how much of it is devoted <clears throat> to the manner and, and to our attitude, uh, not just the presentation of thoughtful and correct content, but how we share those things. So the thought actually begins back in verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good, Peter asks. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So let's make a few observations. <clears throat> the scenario envisioned here comes in the context of suffering for righteousness' sake. That is, suffering for doing what is right in God's eyes. This, of course, can take many forms, but if we look into the uh, if you look into the wording here, notice it's, if you suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed, okay? And there's actually a very interesting parallel to that in chapter 4, verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. And so I think it's it's fair to say that we, we can't really do what First Peter 3 is talking about if we are taking insults and criticisms and all the things that can be expected from those who do not know God as marks of failure and loss and taking them personally, right? No, you are blessed when you suffer indignity, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So do not fear them and do not be troubled by them. But what's the alternative to being, fear and to being fearful and troubled? Honor Christ as, in, as holy in your heart. Peter's words here are strongly influenced by Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 through 13, which says, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear or be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. So whom, whom are you serving? Whom do you fear? Whom are you allowing to dictate what you will and will not do? Man or Christ honored as holy in your heart? That's an interesting contrast, right? Fear or honoring Jesus as holy. Either you will fear man and be troubled by the world, or you will honor Christ as the one who is above all, who alone is God, who alone commands you and determines who you, and what you are. 
It's what he thinks of you that matters. <clears throat> and that's the mindset that you should walk into any apologetic engagement with. Note also that this is the primary command in the passage. Honor Christ as holy in your heart. Right? The, the always being ready to make a defense then modifies that command. It's how we do it. We honor Christ as holy by always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who seeks a reason for the hope that's in us. That's interesting because it means that honoring Jesus as holy is not merely a matter of personal piety, right? There's a public aspect to it. You cannot do it by remaining silent about your faith, about your hope. And when you do it, <clears throat> do it with gentleness and respect, with a clear conscience before God. It's not enough just to be right, as I said, okay? Because that's often missed. You can't just say, well, what I'm saying is true, so I can present it however I want, <clears throat> so I can be however, however abrasive I want. No, how you communicate your defense, <clears throat> I got this thing in my throat here. <clears throat> we'll edit that out in post. <clears throat> how you communicate your defense also matters. If in the process of attempting to win an argument, you alienate the person whom Jesus has sent you to reach because you were not kind, or gentle, or respectful, then you've failed. If, in fact, your gentleness and respect should be so evident to those who revile your good behavior in Christ, it should be so evident to them that they should be put to shame. It should be evident from all this that actually being a bigot, if we're defining that as being intolerant, mean, and nasty, that's off the table for ambassadors of Christ. And that doesn't mean that after you've done all you should, you still won't be called one, okay? <laughs> but there's a difference between someone calling you something or thinking you're something and you truly being that thing, which is why verse 16 speaks of having a good conscience, right? Anytime one of my kids is like, my sister called me ugly, my question to her is, well, is she right? <laughs> right? Um, ultimately, it is God who sees your heart, okay? Knowing this, have you conducted yourselves according to these instructions? Would God agree with that in your conscience, in your heart of hearts? That requires you to be honest with yourself. Have you counted it as a blessing to suffer, including being insulted for righteousness' sake? Rather than letting fear drive you, have you honored Christ as holy in your heart by being prepared to make a defense? And have you done so with gentleness and respect? Those are the things that your conscience must answer. So this all has to do with the way that we treat people with whom we disagree. And this introduces us to the idea of tolerance. And Walt rightly pointed out that the definition of tolerance has kind of undergone a shift in recent times. But for now, we're going to think about the way tolerance has been traditionally understood, and then we'll come back to that. So the position is stated well by the philosopher John Horton. Uh, to tolerance is the deliberate decision to remain from, to refrain from prohibiting, hindering, or otherwise co coercively interfering with the conduct or beliefs of which one disapproves, although one has the power to do so. Okay, so the intention of this is to create a climate 
of civility in the public marketplace of ideas and practices, even and especially when those ideas are under debate. Traditionally, this has been valued in many human cultures, not least of all in the West, because it maintains a healthy environment in which we can then each of us pursue truth. I do not force my beliefs on you. You do not force your beliefs on me. And those who feel it's important for others to adopt their own views can make the best case based on the best evidence and non-coercive persuasion. A tolerant society, then, is seen by many, I think perhaps rightly, as an ideal environment for the flourishing of the gospel. I say unideal environment. There are others. As Paul was welcomed among the philosopher at the Areopagus when he went to share the message of Jesus, compelling some and being ridiculed by others, so we have that opportunity, too, to present the case to all people's conscience. As is evident from that example, however, that doesn't mean that all views are going to be seen as equally valid or compelling. Views that are silly or unreasonable or unable to compel belief can frankly be treated as such in a tolerant culture. And there's no guarantee that good ideas would be immune to that, right? It's a bit of a jungle out there in a tolerant culture. Perhaps foolish thinking is more prevalent in our society than we would like to admit. But what remains is the opportunity to speak one's mind and compel those who are interested in hearing. The question of tolerance when it comes to religious views is an interesting one because there are different reasons why someone might think we should be tolerant to those of, of other faiths. That is, views with which we disagree. So some ad, uh, advocate tolerance precisely because they're skeptics. Okay, It allows them to be tolerant. The religious will always be with us, they might argue, and because none of them are correct, there's no real problem if people believe in the wrong kind of spirituality. In general, as long as belief isn't destructive to our goals in society, it should be tolerated then. And by the way, one of the characteristics of the so-called new atheists of the early 21st century is a broadening of that window of, of which beliefs are, in fact, destructive, right? Um, the idea that faith itself, for example, because it's allegedly opposed to reason, that it's a cancer and we shouldn't, we shouldn't tolerate it so much. But, um, but back to the point, one reason one might advocate tolerance is precisely skepticism. On the other hand, there's a strong religious case that could be made for tolerance as well. This, of course, is different from the skeptic's motive for tolerance and is exemplified in John Locke, who was himself a Christian. Locke correctly understood that belief was voluntary, a matter of personal choice and conscience. And if that's true, then any intolerant effort to coerce belief or unbelief is destructive and, by the way, doesn't even produce true belief, right? Because belief has to be voluntary. The function of the government, then, is to be a neutral third party that upholds people's rights and creates a civil society in which people are free to pursue what they see fit. It is not to coerce people towards certain kind of beliefs or even disbelief. And thus, among the traditionally tolerant, there tends to be broad agreement in maintaining a tolerant attitude towards people's religious views. 
Now, in terms of the kinds of beliefs and practices that ought to be accepted in a tolerant society, generally one begins to draw the line at harm. And classically, the free expression of speech has been seen to be something that does much more good in a society than it does harm. A classic example of this is how in 1978, the American Civil Liberties Union, which is generally a pretty left-leaning organization, defended the rights of a group of neo-Nazis to march through the streets of Skokie, Illinois, a town which was home to a large Jewish community, including many Holocaust survivors. And despite the fact that a vast majority of Americans, and especially many of the ACLU lawyers, despised the hateful views of these Nazis, they supported their right to their freedom of speech on the grounds that the same civil rights that protected them protect all of us, and that the government does not and should not have the right to determine whose speech is acceptable and whose is not, no matter how wrong and, how, and no matter how vile it is. As, a, as an aside, those neo-Nazis never actually did end up marching in Skokie after all, and instead they held their demonstration uh, in the Federal Plaza in downtown Chicago. But the point here is that a strong tradition of tolerance of ideas and the expression of those ideas um, exists in our culture. And the principled position taken by the ACLU illustrates why that's important. Toleration is valuable and needed, not nearly as much with views that we agree with. It's easy to tolerate those views, of course we do, but with those we disagree with. In fact, tolerance is virtually meaningless with things that we like. You don't need to tolerate those things. I don't need to tolerate chocolate ice cream. Okay? What you tolerate are the things that you don't like. So that would be like the chocolate in the box of chocolates that has the raspberry thing in it. Um, one of the reasons is because this is basic human rights, right? But a much more pragmatic reason is because tolerance protects you and your views from those who don't like them. Just as you and I hate the views of the neo-Nazis who sought to march in Skokie and who still do march today, so there are those who hate things that we believe and that we desire to proclaim in the public square. But we should not be so naive as to think that the same tools of power that we might use to silence them and their beliefs, beliefs could not in turn be used to silence us and ours. Here we're reminded of the well-worn but nevertheless true adage, I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. And the good that is maintained by defending all people's freedom of expression outweighs the harm that is done by even the most offensive speech. Now back to the idea of that cultural shift in tolerance. If I were giving this talk 10 years ago, the shift would have, I, I would have spoken of is as follows. Whereas tolerance once meant defending the free expression of ideas and the willingness to listen honestly to others, it came to mean in the eyes of many in our culture that the, tol the tolerance of all views except those that were deemed intolerant. And so you can express your ideas to your heart's content, have at it, and you would be tolerated. But the moment you went on to make a claim that something was true for all people everywhere, your opinion was no longer acceptable. Now, whether or not that's coherent at all, I leave you to review the first uh, 
part of Walt's talk for that, right? Um, but yeah, so like the more exclusive your truth claims, the less acceptable they were in modern society. And this, of course, is toxic to the message of Christianity, which has its heart as, as, as its heart the exclusive message that Jesus is Lord of all and that salvation from sin is given to those who place their trust in him and only to those who do. However, we seem to now have shifted to a new cultural moment with its own unique challenges. The same people who might have expected been expected to object to one person telling someone else that their views were wrong 10 years ago are now quite happy to do that. They're quite happy to point out when they think something is wrong and to engage in various forms of activism to oppose it. And many see it as their moral obligation to do so. Contemporary cancel culture is but one symptom of this newer shift. And this stems on a basic level from a broadening of the category of harm. Remember when I said like usually tolerance, the line is drawn when it harms other people, okay? Um, uh, a, a principle of toleration is that one is permitted to hold one's views and to act in accordance with them so long as no one else is harmed. Now, however, thanks to various forms of critical theory that have taken hold in the American psyche, it is much easier to make the case that certain beliefs cause harm, indeed violence, especially to select categories of marginalized people. Okay? It's the beliefs and the expression of them that actually causes harm. It's not uncommon to hear, for example, that expressions of traditional views of gender are, quote, literally killing transgender and non-binary people. What is usually left out of such assertions, of course, is where transgender and non-binary people got the idea from in the first place that the expression of their authentic selves is so important that it's worth taking their own lives. Uh, by raising stakes to that level and promoting that message, transgender activism has inadvertently done more harm to transgender youth than any staunch traditionalist ever could. Today, not only are we likely to encounter many people who are offended about the exclusive claims of Christianity, but we are increasingly likely to encounter people who feel that certain ethical stances taught in the Bible and held by a majority of Christians do harm to people who are vulnerable. And so, as others have pointed out, whereas in decades past the challenge for the Christian witness was to show that Christianity is true, today it is to show that Christianity is moral. The questions one was likely to hear years ago were things like, does God exist? How can you believe Jesus rose from the dead? And how do you know the Bible is true? Today, these are increasingly being replaced with, do you think it's wrong for gay people to marry? What is the proper Christian response to this? Well, first, I think it's important to realize that the kinds of questions that you're likely to encounter depend heavily on where you are, and who it is that you're being called to reach at any particular moment. None of this means that the current apologetic strategies are obsolete. That's why we still saw value in dedicating our sessions this summer to those questions. Do I need evidence to believe? Does God exist? Are the Gospels reliable? Did Jesus rise from the dead? What about evolution, right? For vast amounts of people in our orbit, and for you sitting in this room, these are still extremely relevant questions, and they always will be. How likely 
you are to have to respond to the questions surrounding the newer harm-sensitive version of tolerance, again, depends where do you work, where do you go to school, where do you live, who are your friends, people who live in cities or places with a lot of people highly influenced by popular culture and trends are much more likely to encounter this sort of thing. It can seem bigger than it is because it is so prevalent among the powerful and cultural elite, universities, powerful companies, big tech, government agencies, the entertainment industry, okay? Making it more and more difficult to claim that certain classes of people are in fact marginalized. Um, and this is concerning enough for us to give attention to us, but, the, but navigating the principle, uh, the navigating principle here is to be a good missionary where God has placed you. If that means dealing with a lot of that stuff, that's what you need to be thinking about. But it's also possible that he's placed you in a position where you are need to, needing to reach people who aren't buying any of that stuff um, and are going to be asking more traditional questions. Either way, you need to be able to give a defense to any and everyone. If you want to be an effective witness to Jesus Christ, you need to be able to swim in both worlds. You shouldn't be so committed to one side of a culture war that you are immediately written off as a bigot by one side or as a squishy-minded whack job by the other. That doesn't mean you need to agree with things that you think are wrong. You should have enough truth in you, though, that you are able to select the right kinds of things to say to the right kinds of people. And that is only disingenuous if you're compromising truth in order to meet a particular end. An effective apologist knows what is compelling to different kinds of people and will select the right things to say at the right time. Colossians 4, 6 says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. And since we're on the topic of bigotry and intolerance, let's take as an example how we might respond to the idea that all religions are essentially saying the same thing. Okay, So Walt gave us the nuts and bolts of this. Um, in my experience, we're most likely to encounter this given as a reason for the notion that we tr shouldn't be trying to convert people and should keep our ideas about God to ourselves. I'm looking for an honest and genuine way, when I encounter that, right, to flip the script on its head. Okay? Now, let's say that the person who says this to me is a, has, has a harm-sensitive view of tolerance, right? that all religions are essentially saying the same thing. I'm focused on winning the person, not just the argument. I mean, I should be. Maybe sometimes I'm not as much as I should be, right? But um, So what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to affirm as much of their narrative as I can within my Christian worldview um, as long as it corresponds to truth. And it turns out, as a follower of Jesus, I don't want to do harm to other people. I do want people to know that I have a genuine desire to understand them so that I can meet them where they are, just like Jesus did and just like he still does today. And part of that means I don't want to impose my views on other people, okay? I can, I can agree with those things. We, we can all agree that that's wrong. So then, if I'm talking to a Muslim or someone from any of these world religions, right, 
who my conversation partner thinks are all essentially saying the same thing, what would they say, I might ask? And the reason I want to know what they would really say is that I don't, I don't want to silence the voice of this religious other. I, like my Lord Jesus, am not in favor of silencing the views of the marginalized. So if I say that Jesus is fully God and fully man, and that he died on the cross and was raised by the Father on the third day, would the Muslim agree? Of course not. She'd oppose it with all that is in her. In fact, she'd say that the idea that Jesus is fully God is the highest form of sin that could be committed. It's shirk, the utterly blasphemous idea that Allah shares his attributes with anyone. She would also say that Jesus did not, in fact, die on the cross, let alone rise. And yet the Christian would say that that's the most essential of all beliefs. So I would respectfully disagree with the one who, in the name of harm-sensitive tolerance, insists that all religions essentially claim the same thing. In fact, I would say that to do so is a form of Western religious domination, silencing non-Western voices, many of whom have a lot less power than we do, and putting our pluralistic values of culture uh, in, the, in their mouths, right? D values that they would disagree with. It is little more than what Vinoth Ramachandra calls religious imperialism masquerading as tolerance. So instead of doing that, we might say, let's respect the truth claims of our beautifully diverse world and see which we find the most compelling. Okay, It's a different way of presenting the same points. At other times, when interacting with people who hold a harm-sensitive um, view of tolerance, it is often important to be sensitive of when is the right time to have conversations about certain things. So discussions about sexual ethics, for example, can often do more harm than good. And for a fuller explanation of my thoughts on this, you can check out uh, the talks I did a while back on homosexuality and transgenderism. But essentially, we need to realize that this is an extremely sensitive issue that can easily become a virtually insurmountable stumbling block for someone coming to faith in Christ. And so my general advice is that most discussions about sexual issues should happen as part of Christian discipleship, not evangelism. There are some exceptions to this, but the truly dangerous aspect of the current mainstream cultural thinking on this is the idea that acceptance of, say, a homosexual lifestyle, for example, is a prerequisite for coming to faith in Christ. In other words, that one should not become a Christian unless one is able to do so and still engage in same-sex relationships if that person is gay or to affirm them as good, as good if that person is straight. It's often easier to see this and to think clearly about this issue if one swaps out the issue of same-sex relationships with other sexual issues. So, for example, it's pretty much a given that 99.99999% of guys, and close to that with ladies, look at porn. Okay? Well, if I'm trying to reach someone who's just straight, right, with the gospel, how much am I going to be like, yo, first we got to talk about your porn issue, right? Maybe, but it's pretty unlikely, and it probably is not going to come up at all in the context of evangelism with them, right? 
I would say, as most of us would, I think, that the purpose of my Christian witness is to lead people to repentance and faith in Christ, not to get them to agree with me first about sexual issues. For some, that might be a particular hang-up, but for most people, I want to lead them to Jesus, and then once they understand who he is, once they embrace him by faith, and once they understand the call to discipleship uh, and are beginning to walk with him, then I will seek to be used by the Spirit to identify sin issues and wrongful thinking. In other words, these things are best worked out in the context of discipleship. I also think that as Christians, we need to avoid placing undue focus on the issue of same-sex relations. I don't mean to imply that the Scriptures are not clear that this is sin, or that we should not treat it seriously or speak with clarity on it when we have to. What I do mean is that we often engage this topic with huge logs in our own eyes. What is our attitude towards premarital sex? What is our attitude towards adultery? What's our attitude towards pornography? Do we treat these things with the seriousness that they deserve? Or are we hypocritically accepting of these things in our own lives? And for God's sakes, let us never, never posture ourselves as self-righteous people who are not in need of a savior every, much as, uh, uh, every bit as much as everyone else is. The person whose sin should concern me most is mine, this guy's, okay? Um, we should be transparent. We should be vulnerable with our own need for grace, of course, in a way that's sensitive to where we are, who is hearing us, but we will kill our witness if we become the Pharisees standing in the way of people coming to Jesus rather than the forgiven tax collectors and sinners who understand we are unworthy to even break bread with him. I think we could do a lot towards effectively engaging the world, too, by uh, taking seriously what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5. He writes, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, reviler, reveler, um, drunkard, drunkard, no, just kidding, uh, or swindler to even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? That's a typo. Is it not? It should be. Um, God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Okay. Now, there's obviously a lot up here uh, that we would need to unpack to get our heads around what is typically called church discipline. That's not what we're doing here tonight. For our purposes, I want to just pull several important truths from these powerful words. First, the Christian is not to go out of the world, okay? That's where God wants us, among those who need him. And if you're going to be there, you need something of a hard shell and to not be fragile because other people's sins offend you, okay? Sinner's sin should not be a shocking headline for anyone. Second, we should be far more concerned about the sin within the church than sin outside it. And third, it is not our judge to, job to judge those outside the church. Now, that doesn't mean that we cannot make decisions with moral clarity or call a spade a spade 
or even try to make a world, the world a place that is better reflective of godly morality. What it does mean is that the sin that the church should be concerned with disciplining is the church within it, not outside it. All right? So those are just some thoughts. Is Christianity bigoted? No. Are Christians? Sometimes. But we shouldn't be. We should do all we can to remove the stigma from ourselves, understanding that it is nevertheless inevitable that we're going to be reviled by the world. But this is the world God has called us to reach, and we should do so in a way that's sensitive to that and how other people see us. Don't be afraid of them. Instead, honor Christ as holy in your heart. And if you do, you are blessed, even if you suffer insults for Jesus' sake. After all is said and done, it's his opinion of you that matters.